Good evening. Is this working? It is on. Has anybody seen Pastor Drew? I've been looking for him. He's, oh, I guess his golf game's running a little late tonight, so um, that's okay. We will continue our journey through um, the Gospel of Luke. Before we jump in, will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much that you've given us the privilege to gather together, Lord, that you've given us your word, that we can know you better, that we can love you more and love each other more, Father. We just pray tonight that you would open the scriptures to us, Lord, and teach us, Lord. We are relying totally on you, the Spirit of God, to teach us tonight what you'd have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So let me invite you to look at the sixth chapter of Luke. And we come to verse 12 through 16 tonight. And here we are introduced to the 12 apostles. So would you read along with me, verses 12 through 16? Uh-oh. Somebody's in trouble here. <laughs> and it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I know what some of you are thinking. This is great. Um, Jesus goes into the mountain, he prays, and then he picks 12 disciples. We're going to be out of here in five or ten minutes tonight. That's the whole text. It's all we got. <laughs> yes, this is not a complex passage, nor is it a, a doctrinal passage. Yet I think it's one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture because we find that these were very common men and God called them for a un very uncommon calling. And that's very encouraging to us uh, because this is very consistent with what God does. He deals with ordinary people and he lifts them up to amazing usefulness. And when their lives have a powerful impact on the world, it's clear to everybody that it can't be because of them, it must be God. And the glory goes to God. So I want you to notice, uh, let's start in verse 12. I want you to notice the opening phrase in verse 12. It says, and it was at this time. Well, what time was it? Was it 2 o'clock or in the afternoon? No. The time, we're not talking about clock time. We're talking about uh, the sense of time as a season or an era. And it's a period of time. This period of time is easily defined for us in the flow, flow of Luke's uh, record of Jesus' life. If you remember back in chapter 5 or 17, we were introduced to a couple groups of people, the scribes and the Pharisees. And since then... We have been watching an increasing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And that 
conflict now has reached a high point in chapter 6. You look at verse 11, tells us, they themselves, referring to the scribes and Pharisees, were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Mark and Matthew's gospel says that they wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted to murder Jesus. So it is at that time that we break into the scene here in verse 12. It's the time of increasing hostility towards Jesus, and it has reached its peak. In two years, he will be executed, and after his execution, he will rise from the dead, he will remain on earth for 40 days, and then he will ascend to the Father. His earthly work will have to be carried on and hand it off to somebody else. So now it's time to prepare his official representatives, some key men who can carry on the preaching of the gospel. It's now time to begin their intense training. And there's also another clear reality to this, is that when Jesus chooses this 12 to be his official representatives of the gospel, who will not only carry his message, but his authority Look at who he doesn't choose. He doesn't choose a rabbi, a scribe. He doesn't choose a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He doesn't even choose a priest. The Lord did not choose one of them. He did not choose men who were theologically trained. He chose men who were just regular common guys. Jesus totally ignored the religious establishment. He ignored the religious nobility of Israel. Why? Because they resented and hated him. They rejected him and his message. John put it this way in his gospel. They came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that was especially true of the religious leaders of Judaism. And now they're to the point to come up with a plan to execute him. The whole religious establishment is hostile to the gospel of grace and forgiveness. They reject Jesus and his message. Now, if you've visited some of the great cathedrals here and in Europe, you might assume that the apostles were these stained glass saints, somehow should be exalted to some high level of spirituality. But the fact is they were very, very common men. And for the most part, they're not heroes to us. Maybe Peter, but they should be. Some of you know who William Tyndale is. William Tyndale was concerned that the people who went to church in England in his day heard the Bible in Latin and not in their language, which was English. So he translated the Bible to English. The church, believe it or not, didn't like this. They did not want the people to have the Bible in their own language because they thought they would lose power. So they killed William Tyndale after he had translated the Bible into English. But one of the reasons that Tyndale was prompted to do this translation was that he did a survey of the clergy and they did not know who the 12 apostles were. Now, we won't do a survey tonight, if you can name all 12 without looking, but I would strongly recommend that you do your own in-depth study 
of these men on your own. And you will find this extremely encouraging because God was able to do so much with so little. And that all, that all gives us hope, right? And when you get to heaven someday and you walk through those gates of the city of the New Jerusalem, when you walk through those 12 gates, at the top of each gate, there's going to be a name. And the names are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Also, there's going to be a name at the bottom of every gate. And at the bottom of every gate, there's going to be a name of 12 apostles. And they're going to have an eternal tribute in the foundation of heaven's gates. Every time you go into the city, you're going to go over the name of apostle and under the name of the tribes of Israel. Shows us that God once brought his truth of a saving message to the tribes of Israel and then later on to the 12 apostles. They are the new and true spiritual leaders in Israel to preach the new covenant of salvation by grace and faith. They're going to go and preach the gospel and give birth to the church. Now, none of the religious elite of Israel qualified. So the Lord chooses 12 ordinary men consistent with how he does things. And throughout redemptive history, God has chosen ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that's a truth that Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians. Turn to your Bibles for a moment to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, recognizing this under the inspiration, writes in verses 20 and 21, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where's the brilliant mind? Where's the brilliant writer? Where's the great speakers of the day? We're looking at the church and we're saying, where are they? They're not there because... God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. It was a foolish message and it was foolish preachers. It was beneath the elite. If you look at the church, you'll ask, where are the great minds? Where are the great orators? Where are the great um, writers? They're not there. And why? Because down in verse 26, it says, There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen, the foolish things that are not. They're so, down the, so far down the list, they don't even exist. They're nobodies. That they might f- nullify the somebodies in order that no man can boast before God. In other words, in the end, God chooses who he chooses that he might receive the glory. Look around and see who God uses. You say, it can't be through us that these things are accomplished. It, it must be God. Let me remind you 
of a few that God has used. Let's go back to Abraham. Abraham was an idol-worshipping Gentile. God chose him to be his friend and the father of Israel and the spiritual father of believing Gentiles. Joseph entered as a slave, rose in God's providence to be prime minister and was used by God to preserve his people. And after spending 40 years in exile in the land of Midian, Moses, the murderer, was used by God to deliver Israel from Egypt. About a harlot named Rahab from Jericho, she became an ancestor of Jesus Christ and a biblical example of a faithful believer. David, he went from being a lowly shepherd boy to delivering Israel from the Philistines by killing Goliath, and he became Israel's greatest king. And despite living in the wilderness and wearing rough clothing and eating a wild diet, John the Baptist was declared by our Lord as the greatest man who had ever lived. So consistent with this pattern, Jesus chooses these 12 men to be his official representatives. He chose common, ordinary men. Several were fishermen. One was a tax collector, therefore a traitor to his people. Another was a political radical. They were Galileans. They were unsophisticated. They were uncivilized. They were a motley group. Not only were they different in their occupations, but they, their temperament was completely different and their political views different. Yet God molded them into a solid unit. And the lives and the ministries of these men, minus Judas, and including Paul, would change the course of history. None of these men are known for their intelligence. None of them was a theologian. They weren't highly educated. None were wealthy. Maybe Matthew because he exhorted his fellow countrymen. But they were noteworthy for one thing. Look at Acts 4, 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as what? Having been with Jesus. They were shocked. I mean, how could you uh, explain unlearned amateurs handling an argument with a Jewish high supreme court and coming out on top? Only explanation, they must be hanging out with Jesus. Let's go back to verse 12. And so knowing what a crucial time this was, it says he went off to the mountain to pray. Now this is something that we've already been introduced to in chapter 5, verse 16. It says, he would often slip away to the wilderness and pray to find solitude and commune with the Lord. And we'll see this pattern repeated throughout the Gospels with Jesus. So recognizing the crucial importance of this decision, the choice of these men, he spent the night in prayer with the Lord. Because this decision that Jesus would make, these 12 men would decide the course for redemptive history and spreading the Gospel. There was no plan B. There was no backup plan. These were the guys. Now, 
It says to spend the whole night. Now, to spend the whole night is a whole lot of words in English. But in Greek, it's one word. And it's a very rare word. It's only used once in the Bible. And it literally means to endure through the night. It's the idea that he was awake all night through the darkness, and he was persevering with this immense weight upon him, knowing he's headed towards death, and he had to choose the 12 that God desired. Spend the whole night in prayer to God. The phrase in prayer to God actually says in the prayer of God. This is the very prayer of God that's going on here. Think about this for a minute. Don't think too hard because your head will probably explode. We've got the prayer of God. Two members of the Trinity are communing with each other. So here's Jesus in his humanity having to pray all night to get clarity, and Jesus in his deity praying the very prayer of God. His prayers were perfectly consistent with the mind of God, and we know he always did the will of God. And so here again we see the incredible mystery of humanity and deity brought together. A.W. Tozer said, If a man wants to be used by God, he cannot spend all of his time with people. Say that again. If you want to be used by God, he cannot spend all of his time with people. Jesus knew the importance of getting away, the solitude. He needed to pray. How much more for us? Verse 13 says, when day came, so the night of Paris ended, he went down and he says he called his disciples to him. So an English equivalent to disciples would be a student or a follower. Maybe a more precise would be a learner. He called the learners. Now we know that Jesus collected a massive amount of followers because his teaching was beyond anybody's teaching Nothing anybody had ever heard, no no equal. I mean, he had the ability to heal diseases, cast out demons, do miracles. He had all the supernatural power, profound truth. So he was, there were many, many people, thousands of people following Jesus. In fact, if you read John chapter 6, it says, many people were following Jesus. And in John chapter 6 is where he feeds the 5,000 plus the families. So um, th- this was wonderful for them because free food. I mean, if you think about it, they spent most of their lives farming, raising animals, preparing food. Um, life was a lot about eating in those days. So here somebody comes along that just creates food. I mean, this is a life-changing deal here, free food. This was the first fast food restaurant. But not all, of course, were genuine followers, just like today, unwilling to accept the demands of Jesus. John 6, many of his disciples withdrew, it tells us, and were not walking with him anymore. So he had people coming, he had going. People attracted to Jesus and then disillusioned who went away. 
He even said to his disciples once, the specific ones he was focused on, he said, are you also going to go away? Remember what Peter said? Where shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. So there were some who came and stayed, and there's some who came and went. And out of the large group of disciples, it says in verse 13, Jesus chose 12 of them. As he would later remind them in John 15, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And I have appointed you that you, that you would go and bear fruit. It's like salvation. He chooses us. He chose them. That's the calling to produce fruit. And he knew their faults and our faults long before he chose them. If you might ask yourself, when did God start dealing with me? Some of us have a date. I was saved on a such and such date and God was working in my life. But Ephesians tells us that we were chosen before the foundations of the earth. It's like the fellow said, I'm glad he chose me then because if he could see me now, he might change his mind. So have you ever asked yourself the question, why did he choose 12? Why not 11? Why not 20? What's so special about 12? Well, because there were 12 tribes in Israel. Why does that matter? Because this was symbolic. Jesus selected 12 apostles. He was doing something parallel to other things that he had done. In fact, this was a statement of judgment. This parallels the opening of his ministry in Jerusalem. You remember, he made a wick, a whip, went into the temple and attacked the whole operation, drove out the money changers, and he pronounced judgment on them and said, you've turned my father's house into a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Then three years later, that's, the first, that's his first act of ministry. Then three years later, he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on a Monday, and they hailed him as, as the Messiah, Hosanna, Put down palm leaves. Remember all of that, right? Within hours of that, Jesus did the same thing. He went back to the temple again. He assaulted the corrupt religious system. Also in that final week, he says his whole system's coming down, and he went to the temple, and he told them not one stone upon another will stand. And we know what happened 30 years, 38 years later. And his final words to the people in Jerusalem was to beware of the scribes and Pharisees. Beware of the religious leaders. They are going to receive a greater condemnation. The Judaism at the time of Jesus was not the truth of the Old Testament. It was not true worship of God. It was a system of self-righteous work and ceremonies. To show you the link specifically, look at Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 29. Let me set the scene. This was the last Passover, the last supper. This was the first communion service. This was, this was the night before the cross. 
the Lord was speaking with the twelve in that upper room of his death. And instead of showing sympathy to the Lord, an argument broke out. And what was the argument about? Which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? So then Jesus gives them a lesson on greatness and humility. But in spite of their pride and their ambition, Jesus, in his grace and mercy, makes them a promise. He says, Just as my Father granted me a kingdom, I'm going to grant you something. I'm going to grant that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. You are going to be there when I receive my kingdom, when I reign on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. This is the millennial kingdom. And then at the end of verse 30, he says, You will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This tells us that the apostles were chosen to be the new leaders over a new Israel. Back to Luke 6. Verse 13, making great progress here. Having chosen them, it says in verse 13, he named them as apostles. So translated, that would be the sent ones. Now, the, the, the common language of that time, they spoke uh, Aramaic. And there's an Aramaic word for apostle, shalia. And shalia refers to any official representative of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had a tremendous amount of power and authority. They were, uh, they were official representatives of the Shalila that would go out and represent the Sanhedrin, and they would usually go out to settle legal disputes. And the uh, Jews understood this. In, in the Mishnah, it says, the one sent by the man is as the man himself. So the Jewish people were very used to apostles the ones that were official representatives. So apostle then is a great title of respect, power, honor. These apostles had a lot of clout, and these guys never had clout before, just common laborers. So what Jesus is saying, I am now identifying you as my 12 official representatives. Listen to what Mark 3 adds that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. That's their commission. Two-step two process here. Before they could be sent out to preach, they had to be pulled in. This was absolutely critical to be with Jesus before they be, were sent out. It was critical to their apprenticeship. In fact, it isn't until chapter 9 of Luke that Jesus calls, calls the twelves together and gives them the power and authority over all the demons and to heal disease. He is literally going to delegate his power, his miracle power, to these 12. Right here, he's just identifying them and drawing them in. Then he will give them miracle power. Then he will send them out. So first, there was the following of Jesus. They were first called to be disciples, and for many of them, that was their conversion. Then there was a second time when they were called to leave everything. Like Peter and his fishing. Remember chapter 5? Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, no more fishing, right? 
And it says they left everything and followed him. So let's look at a few reasons why these guys were important and unique. I'm just going to give you some general stuff. But also as a side note, there are people running around the landscape today claiming to be apostles. Really? Well, we're going to see some of the qualifications here. Um, I'm just going to throw out a few scriptures for you Bible students. You might want to jot these down and look at them later. So they were important because they were the foundation of the church, the real foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built on the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. They were the first spiritual leaders of the new Israel and the church. Secondly, they received truth by divine revelation. That's Ephesians 3, 5, very clearly says, To them was made known the mystery of Christ, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. They did not preach a human message. They had divine revelation. They were the foundation of the church and the receivers of divine revelation. Thirdly, they were the source of doctrine. Doctrine. When the early church meets in the book of Acts, the first time it says they got together and studied the apostles' doctrine. That's Acts 2.42. So they were the instruments of the gospel foundationally, and they were the recipients of divine revelation, which shows up in the New Testament epistles. And they were the source of doctrine, the mystery of Christ. Also, They were given to instruct the church. Ephesians 4.11 says, He gave to the church and apostles and prophets for the edification of the church. They were the first preachers and teachers of the church. Next, they were examples of virtue. Ephesians 3.5 again, they were called holy apostles. They set a standard for godliness and for virtue and spirituality. They were the first examples for us to follow. Not only that, they were given miracle power to confirm their message. 2 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12 says that God confirmed his word through the apostles by signs and wonders and mighty deeds. These 12 were specifically called and chosen to a unique office. You and I cannot have the same calling as the first apostles, but we have been called and we have been chosen to continue the work of Christ and his apostles. We have been commissioned into service when we said yes to the call of the Lord and agreed to the command of the Lord. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, in the 18th chapter of Luke, the apostles were concerned about the way things were going and what might happen to them. And Peter says in verse 28 of Luke 18, we've left our homes to follow you. So what he's implying is what's going to happen to us? I mean, we've left everything. And Jesus says to them in verse 29, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left 
house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who shall not receive many times as much in this time and the age to come eternal life. You didn't leave anything. You've given up nothing that I'm not going to give you back a thousandfold. Even though most of them were martyred in spite of that, they're going to be rewarded in the life to come beyond comprehension. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, Eye has not seen or ear heard or entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. I could only imagine. No, you can't imagine. And they had a short seminary career, less than two years. All the teaching, all the example of Christ, the internship would be done until finally they would be on their own. They were the first learners that became apostles. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come, learn of me. Now, this isn't just information passed on. This is the greatest kind of learning there is. Walking and talking with him day and night. This is life against life for nearly two years. And I have to tell you, folks, this wasn't easy for Jesus because these guys were really hard-headed. Jesus said to them so many times, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. How many times did he tell them, are you still without understanding? Let me tell you what a few of their problems were, just quickly. They lacked spiritual understanding. And that's a serious handicap when you're doing spiritual work. They were thick, dull, stupid, and blind. And those are terms in the English equivalents to describe what they were called in the New Testament. They didn't understand anything. Over and over when we read the Gospels, we see that. So how did Jesus remedy their lack of spiritual understanding? By teaching. By teaching. Even after the resurrection for 40 days. Secondly, they not only lacked spiritual understanding, they lacked humility. They were frankly self-centered and self-promoting as well as proud. And you say, well, couldn't he have found some humble men? No, I don't think there are any. It's just pride in degrees. They spent most of their time arguing about who would be what? The greatest. In fact, they even sent their mom to plead their case. So how did Jesus overcome their lack of humility? By setting an example of humility to them. Not only did they under, uh, not understand, had no understanding of humility, they lacked faith. At least 40 times, excuse me, at least four times in the Gospel of Matthew, he calls them, O ye of little faith. Now that's hard to deal with. In Mark 4, he says, How is it that you have no faith? Way into this thing. In the Gospel of Mark, there's 16 chapters. In the last chapter, verse 14, it says, He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. This is after the resurrection. That's not the beginning of the story, that's the end. And fourthly, they lacked commitment. As long as there were miracles all over the place, great crowds, everything was fine. But as soon as the soldiers came in the garden, they scattered like rats. 
Mark says they all left him and fled, all of them. And of course, we know of Peter's denial three times of the Lord. So how did Jesus remedy their proneness to defection? By praying for them. John 17 tells us this was another all-night prayer vigil by Jesus. Jesus prayed and prayed for his own that they would be faithful and that the Father would bring them to heaven. And then fifthly, they lacked power. There were times when they couldn't cast out demons, even when they tried. They were weak, helpless, when they were confronted by the enemy. So what did Jesus do to remedy that? The day of Pentecost, right? He sent the Holy Spirit. Ye shall receive power after the Spirit has come upon you. Now you look at this group and you say, I wouldn't have picked them. Who needs people with no understanding, no humility, no faith, no commitment, and no power? Those are just perfect candidates for God to use, right? Because there's no human explanation. And that's the church, and that's us. And it's still that way today. He saw their weakness, but behind that, he saw the potential that he could transform them. And he did it. And you and I today are sitting here as a testimony to the fact that they changed the world. In Acts 4, the people said about them, they are ignoramuses and they are unskilled. But the people also said, in that same passage, it was obvious they had been with Jesus. And shouldn't that be said of us? Sure. In Luke 6.40, it says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And people could see that they were like Jesus. They had his message, they had his person, and they had his power. As ordinary as they were, they were given the highest calling, the highest commission ever held by any human being. And folks, I tell you this, as believers today, we stand in their heritage. For the Great Commission is ours today, isn't it? And they're still changing the world today through their testimony and scripture, which they left us. We are part of that legacy. And those to whom we minister and the next generation to they minister and the next generation that follow was all set in motion by these first 12. Those men were merely instruments in God's hand, just as you and I can be instruments in God's hand today. It's God's joy to use such, such ordinary means for his glory. And this happens when we deny ourselves and follow him. Maybe we should just hang around Jesus a little more. His arms are wide open, just waiting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have shown us about these men. You choose the weak and the common to do mighty work. Lord, show us what it means to walk with your son and become like him. Lord, we pray that we might find new dimensions and joys in our own usefulness for the purpose of spreading the gospel. We thank you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.